Welcome back to the Hemingway List Pod. Talking about Chapter Twelve. Uh, what did I say? France is better than England, apparently. Um, more than a hundred years hence, says Swim. These events that George speaks of, most of us don't know anything about, i.e., the Boer War, Celtic Renaissance, the artists, etc. Your prompt picked up on the last line. Uh, the last you, last line what was the last line. Oh yeah. Um, I rave until wearied of it. I thought with everything English, my thoughts melt away in the memories of the French poets. Yeah, not just the last line. It was the last few paragraphs, the last half of the chapter. It seemed like he was just talking about how good France is. Um, this whole passage is really talking about the atrocities of the British in the Borough War and the politics of it all that would have been of interest to contemporary readers who were much more familiar with the issues. There are so many books I read back in the day that resonated but have fallen into obscurity. George Moore, no matter how unpleasant is he is as a person and narrator, his books live on. I've come to the conclusion that the problem of reading a book this way is we can get lost in the forest for the trees. I've become interested in what he has to say next, although George Shaw does a lot of contemplating his navel. To spend time thinking about oneself or one's own interests, especially to the exclusion of others. Um, Tekrovic says, yes, the navel gazing is not in and of itself a problem. It is the lack of any real reflective urge that is sorely missed. He can scrutinise and penetrate others, but seems wholly incapable of understanding himself and his own flaws. Swim says, George just has no Fs to give. The book is certainly provoking of becoming uh, his apologist, but then I've been reading his biography. I'm not sleeping well right now. It's the first anniversary of becoming an adult orphan. It's a thing. Look it up. My mind drifts to this frustrating book. It beats the grief. Well... Sorry for the hard time you're having there, Swim. And I'm glad the book is, uh, you know, helping. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things that when you write, like the way we're reading it, I'm bogged down in a daily little, you know, sprint of reading and not finding them particularly interesting. But then because of that... I'm going into the reading already disinterested and frustrated. So day by day, I'm giving the chance less. I'm giving the book less of a chance to impress me by <clears throat> bringing tedium to the reading. <laughs> you know, it's some like sometimes it's like I'm so tired, and the task of reading this book has become so monotonous to me that the monotony is projected onto a chapter that if I was actually paying attention or taking an interest might be extremely interesting. Um, but, you know, here we are. I'll do my best to try to uh, uplift the interest, uplift my readings a little bit to bring some life to this book because, Swim, you're quite right. There's surely, you know, this book lives on this author is renowned, there surely must be some interesting or some interest to be had in this work um, for the right people. 
chapter 13 starts like this. I'm not going to do a long reading tonight because I'm particularly tired. It would be better to get away from London and waste no more time joining people in their walks to try to persuade them that London was an ugly city or to wring some admission from them that the Boer War was shameful and that England was on her knees, out, fought, vanquished by a few thousand Boers, about as many able-bodied men as one would find in the province of Connaught. It was in such empty conflict of opinion that I had been engaged yesterday evening all the way along the King's Road, having buttonholed a little journalist as he came out of Sloane Square Railway Station. He seemed to be laughing at me when we parted somewhere in the Grosvenor Road, and I had returned home full of a conviction that I must get away from opinions. My condition would welcome a pastoral country and a vision of a shepherd following his flock rose before my eyes. The essential was a country unpolluted by opinions, and hoping to find this in Sussex, I got into the train at Victoria one afternoon, wrapped in a memory of some South Saxon folk that lived in an Italian house under the downs. They had come into my life when I was a boy and had been always the single part of me that had never changed. Ideas had come and gone, but they had remained, and it was pleasant to ponder on this friendship as I returned to them and to seek out the secret reason for of my love of these people, the very last that anybody would expect to find me among. So it was clear that there was nothing superficial in our affection. It was at the roots of our nature, and I could only think that I had not wearied of these South Saxons because they were so like themselves, exemplars of a long history, a great tradition, and as the train passed through Haywood's Heath, I could see them coming out with Hengist and Horsa, ever since they had been on their land, cultivating it till it had taken on their likeness, or else they had taken on a likeness of the land, which had happened I did not know, and nor did it matter which... Hundreds of dash had come and gone, but the type remained, affirming itself in habits and customs. It is my love of what is permanent that has drawn me to them again and again, I said, and I thought of that sweet returning when coming back from France after a pursuit of painting through the Latin Quarter and Montmartre. I had met Golville in Regent Street, and without reproaching me for my long desertion, he had asked me when it would be convenient for me to come down to Sussex to see them. All my love of them had sprung up on the instant, and we had gone away together that very afternoon. My visit intended to last for two or three days, had lasted two or three years, perhaps more. One reads one's past life like a book out of which some pages have been torn and many mutilated, and among many scattered and broken sentences I come upon a paragraph telling me of a summer which I spent in Southwick writing the confessions of a young man in a lodging overlooking the green. We all remember that wonderful jubilee summer when the corn was harvested at the end of July and nearly every evening of summertime I had followed the winding road under the downs until I came to a corner where the sunk fence could be climbed. As I walked across the park I could see the lights in the dining room, kind, homely, hospitable folk, always glad to see me among whom the pleasantest years of my life were passed, so it is a pity that so much text should be missing or indecipherable. A continuous narrative is not discoverable until the evening 
when Colville brought back two Belgian hares and asked his mother to look after them. I recall our first solicitudes, our eagerness to poke lettuces into their hutch, and when some young rabbits appeared, there was no end to our enthusiasm. Colville's project of a rabbit farm was largely his mother's, I think, be this as it may. By identifying herself with it, she had persuaded herself at the end of two years that she alone could feed rabbits. It was plain to us she was working beyond her strength. There could be no doubt about that. And very often I would plead my right to provoke, to reprove her and take a heavy burrowful of turnips out of her hands and insist on wheeling it across the garden into the rabbit yard. Everybody knows how quickly rabbits breed. Before three years were out, there were 400 rabbits in the yard. One could hardly walk into it for fear of treading on the little ones. The outhouses were absorbed one by one, and in the fourth year there were rabbit hutches in the stables, in the coal and inn, and the woodsheds, and we used to say that in another six months they would be in the kitchen and coming up the stairs and into the drawing room. If the masons that were building Colville's house on the downs and the maker of the iron hurdles of Wolverhampton did not hasten. And every time Colville returned from London, he was asked if he had been able to extract a definite promise from his ironmonger. At last the poor man, plagued by f- and frightened, went himself to Wolverhampton and came back joyful, saying that the main manager at the works had given him special assurances that we might look forward to the exportation of the rabbits down to the downs at the end of the month. The end of the month seemed a long while off, but we understood that if the rabbits were turned out on the downs before the ground was enclosed, the stoats and the foxes would get a great number and poachers the rest. A poaching raid would certainly be organised at beading and the labour of years would be wasted. The last delay was happily not a long one. A few weeks afterwards, the house was declared ready to receive us and the rabbits went away in several vans. Colville and I followed on foot, talking as we went by Thunder's Barrow Barn of the great fortune that always lay about waiting to be picked up by the adventurers. That's enough. For now, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.